The All Souls Witchy Women Podcast, Episode 3, The M-Word. Welcome to All Souls Witchy Women, a fan and definitely not official podcast, where we talk all things All Souls. We're three women who met over Outlander and then jumped into the All Souls world like the time-traveling witches we wish we were. This week, we're doing a special episode honoring mothers, and this is all for the upcoming Mother's Day that I know we're all looking forward to. There's going to be a lot of macaroni necklaces. And we love them. (laughs) Oh, yes. Everybody gets a macaroni necklace. (laughs) So we wanted to do this episode to honor all the mothers and the mother figures in the All Souls trilogy. And I'm Nikki. I'm Janet. Sorry. (laughs) And I'm Ashley. And we're hoping that you'll grab your favorite mommy juice and join us as we talk about the M-word, mothers. We have clearly already gathered our mommy juice. My mommy juice is for low tonight. <sighs> yep. I'm going with a Cabernet Sauvignon in case anyone... Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm not. I'm going with a Cabernet... Yes, I am. That's a lie. I am. It's, I'm going with a Cabernet Sauvignon. That's what mommy would want. I, I think so. I like it. And, and I'm do, doing my usual, you know, winophile, which is mine is red. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> That's all I can tell you. Janet has the house red. Right. Exactly. It's usually in this time in every podcast where we give you a spoiler alert to let you know that we're trying to stay away from a particular book. But tonight's spoiler alert is that we are spoiling all over everything. We are going to be jumping in and and out of all three books. So if you haven't read past a discovery of witches, I don't know, maybe turn it off now or turn it off, go read the books and then come back very quickly. We talked a little bit this week and earlier today about moms and the three of us have have a lot of strong feelings in this area because we were all raised by strong women. I'm going to say the two of you are very strong women and I aspire to be. And we're also raising strong children and some of us have already raised strong children. And we wanted to do this episode to honor all of the strong women in our lives some of them are our mothers, some of them are our friends' mothers, and some of some of the women in our lives are just women who've made big impressions, who have been as close to us as mothers. And we see a lot of those kinds of relationships play out in the All Souls trilogy. So we want to devote some time on this podcast to talk about all of those wonderful motherly type relationships and how we saw them and also how these relationships are sort of reflected in our own lives. How did I do? Did I get it all? Nope. I have one revision. The part okay. where you doubted whether you were a strong woman, I beg to differ. <laughs> and I'm going to go ahead and beg to differ on Janet's behalf as well. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Noted. We've virtually shaken you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Other than that, as all you right. were. Okay. I'm just going to break this down a little bit. So I, when I thought about putting this podcast together, I was thinking about all the different kinds of mothers and uh, the types of relationships and... One of the things that fascinated me is the idea of a witchy mother, a mother who's a witch, which I love. And maybe some of our children would tell you that they have witchy mothers. <laughs> or or something. <laughs> some, some, some letter there. Yeah. I, I'm the mother to a teenager who would most certainly tell you on, on certain days that she has a witchy mother. There's also some mothers who speak from the grave, which I am also fascinated by. And then we have some surrogate mothers that we will get into later. And then lastly, we're going to finish up with adoptive mothers, which is a subject that's near and dear to my heart, but we will get to that then. So there's where we're headed. And with that, we will um, we'll go into witchy mamas is what I'm calling them. I like it. Because <laughs> I like that idea. Can I start with a... Because can I start? I, I think you did. All right. Well, there you go. I, you know, I have real conflicted feelings about um, Rebecca and the whole spellbinding thing. Um, because, and so I would like to hear what you all think about it. Um, I mean, clearly Rebecca loves Diana, you know, tremendously. I believe operates from a place of love and concern you know she's a seer she can so she can sort of see some of what's going to be happening she she knows Matthew is coming um, and that you know Diana has to be ready and available for him and she has to be able to 
be in a position to sort of be able to accept her power and the the burden really that's going to be placed on her. Um, but I just, I, you know, there's a part of me that's just like, couldn't you have just come up with a better plan other than secretly spellbinding your daughter, which just, um, you know, it literally ties her. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's like, is that, is that good mothering? Is that bad mothering? I, you know, all I, all I kept thinking about when you teed this up was, um, it feels like helicopter mothering from the grave. I mean, there's something about it that this is about as drastic as you can go to pre- like put your child in a bubble and prevent them from harm. Um, which I know is not really the definition of helicopter parenting, um, but there is something about putting them in such like safeguarded scenarios so that they won't ever, so that first no harm will ever come to them, but then they will never actually, you know, what she doesn't realize is she'll never really know herself truly until the, you know, the, the spell is broken or until it comes undone in doing so it's like here, she's developed all these, this, these feelings of uncertainty and this anxiety and, um, you know, all these things that have come as a result of something that she didn't even realize was put in place for her as a measure to keep her from harm. But I mean, did it? I don't know. Because are we preventing her from developing some life skills on her own? Well, I think that, I mean, you know, I think this, the spellbinding puts her in some danger. Um, And um, I also think that it sets up this whole path where, you know, I mean, her, her relationship with Sarah, who, you know, we're going to talk more about later is some of the reasons it's fraught is because, you know, Sarah has certain thoughts or expectations about what a witch should be able to do. You know, you should be able to do spells, right. You should be able to follow certain rules. And yet um, one of the reasons that Diana can't do that um, is due to the being spellbound. So it sort of sets up this whole path, you know, where she's going down this thing, you know, where Sarah's saying you suck, she's thinking she sucks, but she literally, you know, couldn't, it's like she's trying to run with her feet tied. Yeah. I would have agreed with you 90 minutes ago. But (laughs) what happened? (laughs) Well, as I was doing my last minute preparation for this podcast... (laughs) It's kind of, I was, was kind of cutting it, cutting it a little bit fine. I was, but I, I came across a passage that I don't remember reading in my first run through the Book of Life, and it's probably because I was like racing to turn the pages on my Kindle to get finished with this book. I was just so desperate to to find out how it ended. But when Rebecca and Philip are babies. Uh, Diana has been struggling with with Becca and how to feed her, and she finally figures out how to feed her, which I'm going to get to in a few minutes. But Matthew says to her, "What you know? We we don't really know who these children are. We don't understand them yet. And what if what if one or both of them has blood rage? So he says, if Rebecca or Philip has blood rage, then we'll deal with it together as a family. And and she says, try not to worry so much. And Matthew says, deal with it. How you can't reason with a two year old in a killing rage." I, my child is not a vampire or a witch, but I'm pretty sure she was in a killing rage at one point when she was two. But that's beside the point. Diana says, then I'll spellbind her. It wasn't something we discussed, but I do it without hesitation. Just as I'd spellbound, just as I'd spellbind Jack, if that was the only way to protect him. It actually stopped me in my tracks because you know, we had talked about this idea earlier about spellbinding and, and how drastic it is. And even though Diana had been spellbound, and all of the problems that that caused her and sort of the angst that it had caused her when she was thinking about her mother and, and kind of why would she do this to me? And, and it made her life infinitely more difficult. She said without hesitation that she would do it to her own children to protect them. And I do recall that passage since I did just um, finish <laughs> my third time through that book. Um, it's fresh in my mind. Um and and I can see what you're saying about that. And I'm not su- and I'm not suggesting that it's it's um you know an entirely a negative thing. I guess what I wish Rebecca had done was maybe just a little bit better better setup for sort of how Diana might discover that she's spellbound, or why didn't she share with Sarah any of this information? I mean, I guess you could say it's because she was protecting Sarah as well, you know, because all of this was dangerous. 
right. you know, to anybody. Knowledge was power and knowledge was also, you know, um, dangerous. So in that sense, it's protective. But I sort of wish there had been, you know, one of those things where something pops out of the house and says, okay, everybody. The instruction manual. Going on, right? you know? Here's how to operate your I witch child. A very exactly. Harry Potter-like. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so just something that I've been thinking about. It probably says more about my relationship with my mother than it says about Rebecca and uh, Diana. But no, we'll probably leave that there. All, all I keep processing for me is like, you know, we're all at different stages in parenting which is also what kind of makes this unique. You know, I have a toddler, almost elementary age son. Nikki has a teenager. Janet has grown children and a grandchild. And all I keep thinking, like, is there a manual that I missed? Did you guys, can someone impart on me where the manual is for this? Because we're big on keeping manuals for appliances and cars and things on this house, but this child did not come (laughs) with one. And so all I can think is every day I make choices and I just hope that they're the right ones. And I know that some of times they will be the wrong ones. But in the moment, I'm hoping that I'm doing as best by my child and making the decision that mm-hmm. I can. And so all I can think is when Rebecca was faced with all the things that she was faced with, it was like, oh my God, I'm I'm not for long on this earth. And I need to make sure that my child doesn't come upon some fate the same way that I did, whether it's right mm-hmm. or wrong in that moment, this is the best choice I can make. Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's a good point, Ashley. And, uh, you know, everybody's toolbox has what tools they've got at the time they have, you know, and sometimes you open your box and you're like, huh, that's kind of empty. (laughs) Um, and then, or geez, why do I have a hammer when what I really need is a wrench, but you know, kind of move forward and work it through. (laughs) Well, I think that's what struck me about that passage that I read tonight is that you know, we all, you know, we, we get to the teenage years or even early 20s and, and we question the way our mothers reacted to things or the, or the decisions that they made. And, and we all say, oh, well, when I have kids, I'll right. do it differently. And mm, yeah, <laughs> and Diana didn't have that moment. <laughs> she didn't say, oh, I wouldn't do what my mother did. She said, without hesitation, I would do exactly what my mother did. And I don't know, for me, as a parent, I have had those moments where I've reflected on things that my parents did that I thought were terrible, terrible. And in the moment, well, I did the exact same things because they they seemed like the right decisions for my child in that moment. And then, you know, after this decision's been made, you silently thank your parents for being the awesome role models that they were. <laughs> if you're lucky too, your adult child will say something to that effect to you later when you're, she's an adult. Oh, I've made many apologies. You're reminding me to make a few just in case. I'm just going to put a blanket one on <laughs> just, just in case. Well, and I'm also feeling that as much as we've done this podcast in honor of mothers, I'm not sure I want my mother to listen to this podcast. <laughs> Oh, she's going to listen. So if you are, you better stop right now. Which is just (laughs) making her want to keep going. (laughs) Yeah, that too. (laughs) Thank you, Adrian. I think we covered Rebecca. Let's talk about Diana, the ultimate witchy mama. Oh, my goodness. So Why do you you think she's the ultimate witchy mama? uh, Well, let me tell you, as, as a child, you always... As I said a few minutes earlier, you never think that your parents are making the right decisions. You just kind of roll your eyes and think, well, I would never do that, right? Because you question your parents' wisdom. This woman has swallowed the book of life. She has become the book of life. How will her children ever question her? (laughs) It's very very sound logic to argue against. I don't know how you argue against that she swallowed the book of life. (laughs) Right. Philip says, Mom, you don't know what you're talking about. And she just holds out her left arm and points to it. And she says, no, yes, I think I do. (laughs) Any questions? Yeah, they're doomed. They are doomed. Yeah. And so, Deborah Harkness, if you're listening, I really, really need you to write a book that includes these children as teenagers, because I need to know how this plays out with with the the dynamics of parenting these children. I I second that. I'd like to see that. So that's why I think she's the ultimate witchy mama, because she can never be argued with, and she is always right. 
So saith the book of life. It's it's right here on my arm. <laughs> and I do really? like that doesn't it doesn't double the same as if you just have a lot of tattoos, correct? Like just making sure. Okay. Yeah. No. That that no. is a point though. Yeah. <laughs> that's just the that's just the tree part that's coming around from her neck and stuff. I do sometimes try to picture like what does this woman look like? I know. I need a diagram or as an illustration or something. Yeah. I mean, I try to recall it and I just try to think, well, how does she just not look like a freak everywhere she goes? That's mm-hmm. what I, when I finished finally, I was like, is she, is she walking around Oxford with these tattoos rolling up her neck and down or she's wearing a lot of turtlenecks now? But what's well, the thing about her face? Actually, lots of turtlenecks. So many turtlenecks with the leggings. It's going to look great, but I'm just like. I don't mean to steer us, you know, steer us completely off course, but I had wondered that as well, Janet. I mean, I've got a better idea in my head about how I, how I think she looks, having read it, you know, a couple of times. But I, but there's still sort of like, you know, there's that moment where like the the words are going across her eyeballs. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just no way that's not disturbing. <laughs> Like at the store. I mean, yeah. It's just you know what though, Teresa Palmer is going to look gorgeous with all that when we make it to season three. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it is true. But um, Diana, as a mother, I you know one of the things I do love about the about the series and the the books is is how her uh, her growth and her understanding of her power and her um, and who she is is tied to becoming a mother, which I just think is an interesting idea. Um, You know, we talk a lot about um, self-actualization and, um, you know, doing interior work so that you come to, you know, self-awareness and self-understanding. But but becoming a mother is about becoming the other, if if, you know, outside of yourself. And yet it's also a way to understanding. And I think that's interesting to think about. Um, uh, and, you know, I certainly understand my mother um, better now that I've, you know, been a mother. And and I've seen that play out with my um, adult daughter, who has said something similar to that as well. Her understanding of me and of herself has, has reached a, um, another level because of her um, becoming a mother. So I think that's interesting because it's also about power. And I think it seems as if giving up selfhood or parts of yourself for someone else would be a loss of power. But I actually think and when it's has to do with mothering, I can't speak to fathering, but I'm going to say for mothering, I think it actually is um, a position of strength. So there. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I love that. And you, I don't know, you, you stated it so well. And I, yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, that how, how do we ever really, I mean, we, we came from, right. We were, we were reared and raised and shaped by our parental figures. And so I, I, I just love what you're saying. The notion of, um, you know, that not only do we understand ourselves as we're, you know, coming into our own, but we start to really go, hey, I can I can recognize now that that my parents were were adults. They were their own individual people that had feelings and emotions and relationships and made choices and and their brains ticked in a certain way that I didn't understand as I just felt like it was a singular relationship where they were parenting down to me or at me or to me or with me. But they were in this position um, of me. Now not I think that you can do that without becoming a mother. I think it definitely, as you become a parent, takes that to a new level to understand, um, to truly understand and know your own parents once you become one. But I do love that idea that really, as you become more familiar with yourself, you also increase the understanding of your own mother. That's very cool. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I've certainly found that to be true in my own life, as I said earlier, you know, you when when you're growing up, you think your parents are idiots, and then you you grow up yourself, and you become a parent, and you think, oh no, no, they were um they were pretty mm-hmm. smart. <laughs> they might not have known what they were doing, but they knew what they were doing. <laughs> yeah, 
I also, I really like, especially in A Discovery of Witches, I went back and I was remembering how several times she keeps looking in the mirror and having this moment where she mentions <laughs> seeing her mother's face staring back at her. And it's like, absolutely, in physical form. Yes, I look like my mother. But I really feel like, too, like that we really are able to see the likeness of ourselves in relation to our parents when we start to understand ourselves fully beyond even the physical sense. Because like I look now and I think, I never thought I looked like my mom. And now that I've become more of an adult, and let me air quote that, and then um, – you know, had a child of my own, I look in the mirror and I see something different than I ever did. I always thought I looked most like my dad and I do in physical form. But when I look in the mirror, I also see a lot of traits and characteristics of my mom that I am certain are from her that have nothing to do with physical sense. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I don't, I didn't know that and I didn't recognize it until I felt like I understood myself better in my thirties that I looked and saw my mom. And so I like the notion of like looking, her looking in the mirror and really that evolving as a thought and uh, something that she's reacting to as the story goes on and she's more fully accepting who she is. And to your point, Nikki, like getting to a point where like, so there was a point early on in the book where she was like, my mom would know when she was first in the library where she said, my mom would know what to do if she was here, which I loved because I can only imagine what you must feel like if you've lost a parent when you still feel like I, I need them. I feel like you'll probably always need a parent. <laughs> But then to get to a point where she has her own children and thinks, what did my mom do? That's what I should do here. And I know that that would be the thing to do. So I don't know. There's just so much full awareness that you see her go through as she goes from seeing, I see my mom in physical form when I look in the mirror to, is it because you really look like her or is it because you're also realizing like, wow, my mom, I always knew was this kick-ass woman. But now that I'm coming into my own and experiencing all these things and learning my own powers, I'm realizing what an amazing creature she was. I so like that. And we will maybe get into this a little bit later, but I will tell you that my daughter, who is not of me, people who know the two of us, who've seen the two of us together, they talk about how much we look and act alike. Mm -hmm. And we don't look anything alike. But so we, we've been together for 13 years now, and she has adopted some of my mannerisms and facial expressions. And I think maybe I've adopted some of hers. And so when people see us together, they cannot believe how much, how similar we are. And sometimes I wonder if when she's older, if she will look in the mirror and see that as well, even though, even though we don't share genetics, I think that being as close as we are spiritually, physically, um, I, I think that she will, she will see that one day. She will look in the mirror and not see my face, <laughs> but but she will see a part of me there because we've we've had that special bond as as mother and daughter, not genetically, but through hearts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it can absolutely occur. Um, I think the genetics can make it, you know, quote easier, but I absolutely think it can occur just by dint of you know spending the time and the energy and the effort and the the love, um, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, a converse example of this, well, not converse isn't the exact word, but an, an example of this, but that is somewhat related is, you know, how people say how couples that have been married a long time start to, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes. There is no genetic reason for that other than you've been living together forever. <laughs> Don't they, they say about owners and their dogs too, I think. All right. See, I'm, I, there you go. Two more. Another example. <laughs> I'm just wondering, Janet, is there any couple in particular you're thinking of? God, well, <laughs> I don't know. I'll let you guys decide when you've seen a picture of my husband. So Only when the we'll two see. of you come out in accidental matching barber shirts. That's all I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a total accident. <laughs> yeah, it's a thing. Actually, you kind of touched on mother's knowing what to do. And, and Diana saying, if my mother were here, she would know what to do. And there was a moment in the brief reread that I was doing before we got together tonight. I was thinking about the moment when Becca, she was hungry, she was crying, and they, they knew she was hungry. They couldn't figure out what to do. And I never know how to pronounce her name. Help me. Mart? 
Marts, you did it. Yeah. Marts giving her some strong hints, like, you know what she needs. And Diana says, you know, Matthew wouldn't like that. And Marts says, what does he know? You're her mother. (laughs) And so Diana feeds Becca blood for the first time. And Becca decides that that is what she has been looking for. And maybe she won't be hungry anymore. I just thought that that was a beautiful reminder of, of how mothers do know their babies. Yeah. You know, in, instinctively, it, it, it's amazing how it happens. You know, we, we seem to be able to know what they need. And even if we aren't sure that we should, we should give it to them or we should encourage whatever it is, we know what they need. <laughs> you know, eventually we have to give them what it is that they need to be healthy and, and to be the strong humans that we want them to be. I just love that. What does he know? You're her mother. Mm. Well, you know, that instinct, instinct, instinct part is, I mean, frankly, it's why any of my children are alive because I mean, I had never even diapered a baby before I had one. So (laughs) I was really operating from, um, you know, complete myth uh, in terms of how children were or babies were, and yet begin to trust yourself, which I think is part of that growth and understanding and development of selfhood. You you start (laughs) to believe that you you do know the right thing to do. It's an amazing sort of moment, right? You have all these months of confusion and chaos, and you aren't sure what what your next step should be. And then one day you kind of look around and you go, no, I've I've got this. This is cool. I can actually keep a human alive. Yeah. You can do it too with, you know, like when I would have a, a seven, a five and a one-year-old in the store, you'd be like, how am I doing this? <laughs> how is this even happening? I remember um, someone when we were about to have Travis, I was maybe like eight or nine months pregnant and at a party in the dead of summer in Atlanta. So I think you can picture my mental state, (laughs) the searing heat. And this guy, I think, was like Sheldon from the Big Bang Bang Theory. He's like an astrophysicist. And he looked at me and he said something about being nervous about having a baby. And he said, you know, it's really hard to kill a baby. And I was like, you're creepy. (laughs) You're super creepy. I just met you. I'm sweating a lot. So I don't know if I just hallucinated or you actually said that. Then he was like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Before you (laughs) call someone, let me, I'm just saying like, it's not as bad as you think. Like it's, you're going to do far better than you think you're going to do. And it's not as, you're going to have the anxiety, but don't have so much fear. And then when he was here, when he was finally here, I was like, I think that creepy guy at the party was right. Like this is, we're fumbling our way through it. But in general, he seems to be responding to all the things that I think might work. And if not, then I'm going to say my mom would know what to do if she was here. So I called her because she was like, I didn't remember until I became a grandparent again. And then it all came flooding back to me as like a instinctual innate, like what to do to help. And I, I, yeah, I think that there is something to that. Like you just it's an innate feeling like you just know what to do. Um, all this will prove super interesting when we do an episode eventually, maybe celebrating fathers. <laughs> but for now, <laughs> we can focus on how the moms rule the roost. And I'm also um, remembering at what point was it? Was it in our last uh, podcast episode where, where, uh, where Janet, I don't remember, maybe not. Maybe it was just in real life where Janet shared with us so that on occasion she would tell her children, this is why, or was it you, Nikki? This is why um, animals eat their young. This is why the mama animals eat their young. (laughs) That that was me. Perfect. Protective services. I really am a good mother. Honest. (laughs) I'll be your character witness. Thank you very much. I I don't really know how to segue this into mothers who speak from the grave. So I'm just going to say, I don't think there's any gentle way to do this. And I don't have a lot of thoughts about this. And maybe you two do. But one of the things that that I really love about this book is how these these two characters that I'm specifically thinking of speak to us from the grave. I, neither are living in any of the three books, but still they have such big parts in the story. And and one is Rebecca. We've we've talked a lot about how she speaks to Diana, even though she's dead. And, and she speaks to her through Diana's remembrances of her, but also the letter, which in my mind really becomes a lifeline for both Diana and Matthew. And I love that Rebecca gave that letter to her. I love that the house kept it mm-hmm. yeah. un- until the time it was. It thought it was appropriate for, for Diana to have it. God, I love that house. I do too. Yeah, I do too. But I, I love that she had the presence of mind to read it. And it really did kind of become her instruction manual, right? So so maybe they didn't have an instruction manual for Diana when she was growing up, but it, it kind of became that for Diana as she and Matthew started on their journey together. It kind of gave them the answers to some of the clues that they had been 
searching for in the, I think it was only weeks at that point that they'd been together. But I thought that was a beautiful thing. And then also Grandmother Bishop. It seems to me that Diana is the only one who can see her. I think Sarah and Em maybe can sense her, but Diana is the only one who can... (laughs) who can actually see her and she talks to her. And it almost seems to me like Grandmother Bishop is Diana's conscience. In the times and the moments that that Diana talks to her, it's kind of like the conversations that you have with yourself, where you're trying to convince yourself to do something or not to do something. And and you just say, what are you thinking? Are you really sure about that? And those are the kind of comments that that Grandmother is always making. (laughs) And so... I'm not convinced that grandmother is really there. Maybe I'm overthinking this. Well, no, I mean, I I think that they can see them. I mean, certainly Diana can see them. And I think the others sense them. They know the ghosts are there because they Mm -hmm. reference them at different points. I mean, I love the idea of just this ghost as metaphor, though, for, you know, the idea that um, we do live on. We live on in our, you know, in the thoughts and the sort of words and actions that we have imparted during the time we're here on Earth and that, you know, that can still resonate in whatever sort of ether um, or sort of psychic space that you you kind of let it. You know, whether or not someone actually hears their parent or, hear, or sees their parent speaking to them literally, I think, is almost mm-hmm. secondary because I think it's just the idea of, of that they could be there with you and that you can still feel them, I think, is, is, a, is a comforting thing. Although these, these people, you know, certainly do give, seem to give good concrete advice, which is always helpful (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. when you're, you know, wondering what to do. I mean, Bridget at one point says, this is right after the poppet has been, you know, the the house has spit out the poppet and um, the discovery of witches. And uh, she says, remember to be canny when you find yourselves at a crossroad, daughter. There's Mm -hmm. no telling what secrets are buried there. You know, of course, Diana has huge moment literally in the crossroad between life and death with Matthew in the book of life and comes to important understanding of herself and what the goddess did or didn't want her to do and what giving up meant and or didn't mean and really enabled her to move forward in a way so that she could do what she needed to do to save Matthew ultimately and get get the covenant abolished etc so but you know but that hint came from Bridget at this point you know at the, at this moment it didn't necessarily mean something to Diana but it was something that would resonate and sit with her come back later and i sort of thinking about ghosts and and you know our, people's legacy that way is kind of reassuring. (laughs) I say that as the oldest person. (laughs) So I can only say this. And and I think the reason why I view grandmother Bishop in this way is, is I'm not sure whether or not I believe in ghosts, but my grandfather died three years ago. And I absolutely believe that he has been with me in ways since he died, that he wasn't when he was alive. I don't know, we live 350 miles apart, and he wasn't able to come here to Michigan, but maybe two or three times to visit with me. I I swear to you that he has visited with me here since he has been gone. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I wonder, was he visiting with me or was this sort of my conscious? Was was he helping me think through something? Right. (laughs) Or or was he really here? And I don't know, I, I just... I think maybe that's why I love the idea of Grandmother Bishop so much because I identify with it as I feel like I have that same sort of relationship with my grandfather now. Yeah. From my perspective, partially too, it's, you know, it's, it's more poignant for me too, because both my parents are dead. So Mm -hmm. I'm sort of acutely aware of the ways in which they, you know, have not been a physical part of my life or my children's lives, et cetera. And yet I know my children all have sort of memories and thoughts about them and that they live on in that way. So that's sort of what, you know, I'm, 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 well, first of all, I am going to come back and haunt people if they don't do what I think they should be doing. So I guess we couldn't call that a life goal, but (laughs) I've already made that clear. Um, So there's that. (laughs) Just, just so we can tie it back. Is that that you're coming back to haunt them while they drive over a bridge just to remind them of fight or flight? You know, whatever it takes, whenever it takes, I'll, I'll be picky and choosy, but you know, when you least expect it, I'm going to show up. I am a little bit, obviously, or a lot of it in this, in the camp of, of Nikki, just because I had a very, very strong relationship with my grandmother, who I thought was my 
my soul twin. Um, and she passed away four years ago. And I dreaded with anxiety for years, probably like the last decade of her life, wondering each time as I drove away, is this going to be that time? Oh, yes. Was that the final time? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, as as with anxiety, generally the anticipation of it is always worse mm-hmm. than, um, than now because I, I'm left with like all of those memories and they come to me in a different way. And now I'm going to cross everything I have and knock on wood because I still have the benefit of my amazing mother here, here on earth with us. But what I love is that in this book, she remembers her mother in a different way, which of course it's because she lost her when she mm-hmm. was really young. Then the idea that her grandmother is coming to her with all, like all this snark and common sense mm-hmm. and wisdom, which is how I feel like <laughs> would differentiate <laughs> My grandmother coming to me, both my grandmothers actually, because we had one that gave what I have called compliments on a string. <laughs> she would, you know, tell you you look pretty and you'd be like, oh my gosh, thank you. And she'd be like, well, now that you've made it through that stringy stage, you were in for quite some time. Right. And then you say, okay. <laughs> yeah. thank you, I think. Um, but then my other grandmother who really I connected with, I think always provided me like these necessary one-liners. And it wasn't like they were coming from a place of humor so much as just I've lived life and I can look at it through a different lens than your mother can look at it to give it to you because I'm one, one step removed. Mm -hmm. And Janet, maybe that's how you feel when you're around um, your granddaughter, which is that you can, like my mom always says, I feel like you all will be more stressed out or more anxious about things than I can be as their grandmother. So I feel like I love that the grandma comes to her in more of a lighthearted way to give the wisdom than she's remembering with her mother. Yeah. That's a really cool thought, Ashley. I love that. Yes. Because that's what my yes. grandma does to me. Just when I'm like, should I? I always think like she's rocking on that porch saying some sort of like snarky comment to me that hits home harder than any sort of just straightforward sentiment, you know? Uh, my my granny, bless her heart, who is still alive at 90 years old, That that is her. That is the, the sass and the snark and oh, yes, I love that. Oh, that just made me really happy. This is like a good time for a wine break. I think it's a perfect time for a wine break. And tonight, our sommelier Bayard has has brought us a bottle of Sauvignon Blanc, especially for all of the mothers, because apparently Sauvignon Blanc is the wine of mothers. (laughs) I'm not sure if I agree with Bayard on this one, but he is a sommelier. And he knows best, so we're going to let him have this one. So, Bayard, tell us about Sauvignon Blanc. Hey there. Today we are talking about Sauvignon Blanc. What better for the springtime and for a Mother's Day, Mother's Day brunch, than a crisp white wine like Sauvignon Blanc. It originated in the Bordeaux region of France, although you can find some of the best Sauvignon Blancs from the Loire Valley in France. An interesting note about Sauvignon Blanc is that it is one of the parents of Cabernet Sauvignon. So Sauvignon Blanc and Cabernet Franc had a child, and the child is Cabernet Sauvignon. That is a little-known fact. Uh, But we have wonderful Sauvignon Blancs here domestically in the United States, but arguably some of the best comes from France and New Zealand. From New Zealand, you will get a lot of tropical fruits and fragrance of grass, Whereas if you go to France, especially to the region of Sancerre, you will find some wonderful Sauvignon Blancs that are a little bit drier and intense with notes of flint and minerals. It is phenomenal. So please go grab a bottle of Sauvignon Blanc. You can find phenomenal Sauv Blancs from under $15 and under $20. Sauvignon Blanc goes phenomenal with some of your seafood dishes or lighter pasta fare. And that's Sauvignon Blanc. Cheers, ladies. Cheers. Cheers. Surrogate mothers. And I'm not even sure if this was a really good way to classify this, but I wanted to grab on to all of the mothers who I loved in this book that didn't neatly fit into other categories. And the ones who immediately come to mind are Sarah and M and Mart. And yes. Sarah and M are two, two of my favorite characters. Okay. They're all my favorite, but I, I love the relationship of Sarah and M and I know that Janet has some things to say about them. So I won't, I won't say too much, but I, I love the relationship that they have with each other. I love the relationship that they have with Diana because they're, they're kind of like two mothers in one yeah. <laughs> for, for Diana. And 
And I love that. And then we will talk a little bit about Mart too and, and her role as sort of a surrogate mother. Well, I think, I mean, I love Sarah and M too, but, and, but I sort of said, I, I think they, you said they play two in one. And I think that sort of was my thought that sort of good cop, bad cop, because, you know, mm-hmm. on the phone, when she's got like 900 messages on her voicemail, she what she knows, you know, Sarah's the one who gets on and immediately jumps into the, you know, like, what are you doing? Why haven't you answered your phone? You know, and Em's the one, not just a minute, Sarah, you know, and she's the calmer one. And um, I think it's one reason, you know, her, her death is um, both necessary and so, so sad because it's just a nurturing side that is another loss for Diana. I think Sarah begins to soften um, as um, without Sarah and show that side of herself a bit. I think Fernando helps her with that. Um, and I think he could be considered in the surrogate mother role on some levels. But, um, but anyway, so I think that their, that their relationship changes, but I think that they are a good, a good combo f- for Diana because of their, their different traits. The yin and the yang. Yep, exactly. They are. And there's, uh, I was gutted. I was absolutely gutted when M died because I thought that they were, yes, exactly what you said, Ashley, the yin and the yang. They, they just, together, they were just this, this super team. They were synergistic. Yeah. That's one of my favorite words. I, you know, they each had their flaws, but together they were just this one amazing power couple. I think the reason M had to die though, was because she, um, Diana needed the strong one to sort of, you know, Sarah says to her one point, look, you know, why did you do so well in the 16th century? Oh, because you weren't trying to be somebody other than who you were. And like, you need to get over it and accept your power and use it. And I think that, you know, I think Diana needed to hear that message like seven different ways um, Mm -hmm. before she finally got there uh, and could accept it and acknowledge it. And it was going to be harder for her to hear that message with M kind of, you know, assuaging her feelings, et cetera. Right. And and I think that that maybe Sarah softened a little bit as well. Yes. No, I think she did too. She did. Yes, you're right. A- after her death, I-, I think it did change the relationship with Diana. And, you know, I they, they both changed yeah, as exactly. a result. But I'm still sorry she had to die. There's always it's it's just like there always has to be, you know, in any saga that has some. I mean, this is this is a saga. There's got to be the loss of someone beloved. But you, I just I felt like it was in the first book going, oh, I hope not them. Well, who's it going to be like there always has to be someone that you lose because you have to experience the range of emotions that was not the one I was seeing going and it made me really sad. And I think it's because I have a very, very strong relationship with my aunt who actually probably is a blend of the two of these, but you know, I, I'm not, I don't know whether it was like a good Mm -hmm. choice, a bad choice. I'm not even saying that it was just to your point, Nikki, like, of course, someone probably is going to die in this series that is pivotal. I just wasn't picturing that. So that brings us to Mart. And I just can't say her name without smiling because I just, I have this picture of her in my head and she is in my head. She is every grandmother ever. Have you seen father Brown? Cause the, act- I haven't, the no. actress who's playing Mart is in father Brown and she's awesome. I think it's a perfect pick myself. When I saw her picture for the first time, I thought that's her. That is. Yeah. It's so rare that I actually that that the person playing the role is is who I pictured, but it she's perfect. I think. Yeah, I think she's going to be very good. What makes her a surrogate mother, and I, and I think Ashley has some thoughts about that. But it's surprising to me that she's not a mother, and we don't know her backstory, which it would be interesting to know more about how she became a vampire. But she has she has such mothering instincts and. Right from the start, the first time she meets Diana, even when Isbo is suspicious of her and doesn't want to get too close to her and is growling at Matthew, Mart is like, come on, let me feed you. Come on, girl. You need to eat. You need to drink. And then she senses the relationship that Diana and Matthew have, and, and she starts trying to protect them in her own way. Yeah. And... 
Exactly like a mother would. And, and I, I just, I love her spirit. I love her presence in all of the scenes that she's in. Her doting, yeah, just, awesome. I just, I never knew my Lebanese grandfather, but I have a feeling that my Lebanese grandfather or anyone in his family of the female persuasion <laughs> would have been this woman. Like, oh my gosh, we must get more food, get more food. Like, let's take care <laughs> of her. Let's do the things. Let's get in in there and smother with love and nurturing and food. So much food. We must feed. We must like take care of all the physical needs that could, once those are met, then we can look at the things within. And I love that. I feel like that's probably the Lebanese grandma, the nice Jewish mother, maybe a, a Mexican abuela. Like, I just feel like it's every strong stereotype of like, a culture based, you know, that, that celebrates family and food and taking care of each other and, you know, really having your village. And, and I, I don't know, just that speaks to me when she's in there. I'm like, yeah, she is what keeps that, that ginormous estate ticking. Like she takes care of all the people while all the drama is going on. I, and I was just going to say, like a grandmother, she cooks all the food that she can't even eat. Oh, that's yes, right. Classic female. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, because as my dad and my aunts have inherited from my grandfather and his family in the old right. country, like, what does hunger have to do with it? Just eat. I think that the uh, other witches that Diana meet, meets to are also mothering. And, um, and I think that that started to get me thinking about how when friendship how friendship plays into mothering and um, you know, sort of just how women interact in general, you know, she, Diana meets, she's got a couple of different covens at various points who help her, you know, Goody Alsop is important in shadow of night, Janet Gowdy in the book of life and somebody whose name I can't remember in the book of life near the end, <laughs> which is sad because I finished mm -hmm. the book. Um, but, um, but, you know, they continue to be a part of Diana's life um, after everything is resolved and are helping Mart and this witch who shall remain nameless, um, you know, are helping to babysit the Rebecca and Philip because they, and they've become fast friends. And I, I just love that idea that female friendship is on some levels an extension of mothering. Mm -hmm. And, you know, mm -hmm. I think we can all think of instances where that's part of, part of what your good friends are doing for you. That naturally makes me think of you too, but so I couldn't agree more. <laughs> I, I always say to, um, you know, my, it really does take a village. And I always like my people, my people, all of my people that we lean into each other and help make life tick on a daily basis. And I'm like, this is as close to commune living as I think I'm willing to do, but I love that everybody just dives into help fill the needs in each other's world, whether that be physical, the shuffling around of people and getting them when you can't get them yourselves. Or, I mean, I remember a, a time, you know, last year where I was like super sick with a fever at the end of the year, partner, husband's out of town, kids still looking at me like, blink, blink, what, what are we doing? Are you going to feed me? And you all virtually were just so loving. If you had been here, I knew you would have dived in. But like the neighbor's husband showed up with food and just left it on the doorstep and texted me and said, just have the kid open the door. He's fed. You've got this. And I <laughs> cried because I was like, it's all you need is to know that people are supporting you where you are and you will offer it in return. And I think that when that, now that I have grown up and recognized who those people were for my parents, specifically for my mother, I realize now, right. even if I didn't realize it then, Oh my gosh, you were my surrogate mother. And I and I thank them every time I see them that they're still in my adult life. Like, I'm sorry I don't see you as much. Please know that I always will look at you and think you did so much for my mom and also for me. And I just didn't realize it because I was a small child. So I love that she has these moments and especially like she's gone back. And so it's not necessarily in her own time. She's a stranger in a strange land for herself and still is finding these relationships. And I love that. In the same vein... We will finish up with adoptive mothers, and I, I've already alluded to this one. This one is near and dear to my heart because I am an adoptive mother, and some people have a tendency to not think and assume that you are only a mother if you have if you have carried a child in your body. Yeah. That's wrong thinking. I, any mother, if you're carrying a child in you or you're waiting for an adoptive child, you have moments where you wonder, 
can I do this? Am I going to be able to do this? As a, as a mother carrying a child, you don't really have any options because that child's going to come out of you at some point and you're going to have to figure something out. And maybe a little more scary as an adoptive mother, because not only is this child not going to come out of you, it's not going to look like you. And there may be some baggage, you know, a, attached. And you're just not sure if, if this child is ever going to take. And you see that child for the first time and you realize that whatever you were afraid about or whatever fears you had, whatever concerns you had, don't matter anymore. Until I became an adoptive mother, I didn't understand how that worked. And I don't, I, I don't know that you can really explain it to anybody who hasn't experienced it. But so because I've had that experience, I am especially attuned to these relationships in books. And I talked a little bit about that in our Outlander episode as well, because there are a lot of adoptive mothers in Outlander. But here in the All Souls trilogy, I see Isbo as an adoptive mother and I see Diana as an adoptive mother as well. And I love the, the relationships that they have with the other characters, especially when I think about Diana and I think about how she nurtured Jack and Annie in the shadow of night. And she, she did look after them. She did care for their well-being, but I don't really feel like she became a mother until book of life when Jack came back. And all of her mothering instincts kicked in and she didn't care what had happened in the past. And, and she had no fear about whether or not this, this grown child now was, was going to love her or whether he had feelings in return. She kind of knew that. But her only goal was to protect this child that she loved so much and even kind of put herself in harm's way to protect him because she wasn't sure what his reactions were going to be to her when he was in his blood rage. So those scenes were particularly meaningful to me because it's, it's when you know that that mother bond has taken, it's, it's taken hold and that child will be yours for life, genetics or no. Interestingly too, using that Jack example, you know, in the book of life where Baldwin threatens Jack and she she does not pass go. She like puts Baldwin in this thorn mm -hmm. cage, you know, like she's doing Oh, I love son, that. Right? Like there is zero hesitation when it comes mm -hmm. to her children. She has to learn to let go and do that when it comes to protecting Matthew. She has a couple of times mm -hmm. where she should have done something and oops, she didn't <laughs> because she, you know, got, she let her brain get in the way. But when it came to her kids, man, she never did never had to learn that. That's a really good point, Janet. And I think and I think that's true. I mean, I think we all that resonates for everybody who's who's a mother, you know, adoptive or otherwise. It's just like there's you wouldn't you don't think. You just do what has to happen. And you'll do whatever has to happen. I think just to follow up on that and and to what you started with, Nikki, that it doesn't matter that he wasn't you know, of her, yep. right? He, she said, I know my son. I like, they were like, it's dangerous to get in his way when this is going on. And she just jumped in with like a, he's my son and I know him in the same way she would with her own babies, like it, with her own babies, you know, that she's actually carried in birth. And, but she was just jumped in his way and said, no, no, I know him. He yep. won't harm me. You know, they're all looking at her like she's nuts. And she just was like, this is my son and I know him. In the same way that like Isabeau looks at Matthew. Like, no, you know what I mean? Like there is no, it was different. It was whatever. It was like, he was always mine. He was, it doesn't matter how he got here or how I was made his mother. He was always meant to be mine. Well, well and I think it's an interesting idea. In some ways, it's sort of the, the whole vampire concept is actually a more realistic one when you think about creating family. I mean, you know, you have this thing, people fall in love, they have babies, right? It's a biological thing. And yet you, you know, and then suddenly you have this family that everybody's supposed to be in love and it's all great, you know, and yet really what you are doing is making a family. I think that verb is a much more accurate one. And that is what, you know, how vampires will refer to it. You know, I made Matthew, you know, I, I made you know, Jack, I did, mm -hmm. you know, it, that's, um, and, you know, they make a point in the book of life that it's, you know, um, that Matthew is Jack's father, even though father Hubbard is his sire. And, you know, they make mm -hmm. a real distinction about that. And, and it's sort of the first time in the series where it really becomes a, an important point, but I think it all goes to sort of this, this 
you know, conclusion that the series is coming to of, you know, how we are all tied together and how we, you know, we need to learn to live together and understand each other. And I, but I like that idea of making, making a family rather than, rather than having them, because I, I feel like it's a much more realistic way of understanding how families operate, because it's actually a lot of work to have mm-hmm. the family that is the family of in your dreams. Um, it doesn't just be, it's not, has, it, is, it has very little to do with sort of the fact that, you know, they came out of your body, actually. <laughs> what it has to do with is sort of the environment in which you all grow up and how you learn to love each other and how you treat each other and how you regard each other. It's always described as having a family when really it's like, that's the easy part, right? Cranking them out. It's the making of family. That's That's very true. I love that, Janet. Maybe there's nothing else to add to that. Except to do our first review. (gasps) Drum roll. So everybody, we are just getting started here. And this is only our fourth episode. So we're pretty new at this. We don't have many reviews in iTunes. Hint, hint. Someone that none of us know was kind enough to leave us a review, and we wanted to to point it out here, and Ashley's going to read it, but we also want to take this opportunity to say to you, if you have listened to this and, and you have thoughts, please leave them in a review for us. Let us know. Even if they're bad thoughts, we're big girls. We can take it, mostly. We can take it. That's right. It's how we learn to get better. Yes. But Ashley, would you please read this lovely review that we received? Oh, it would be my delight. So this is from Mrs. Joe P, who said, excited to have found this podcast, which is like the greatest note to find when you open up iTunes. Like, Yes, that's what we were hoping for. She says, I have loved these books for years, so I was excited to see Deborah Harkness tweet about this podcast, and it was a bonus to hear them talk about Outlander. So Mrs. Joe P., Going to go ahead and jump to just here's the spoiler. We were also excited when Deb, <laughs> to see Deborah Harkness tweet about this podcast. So, you seeing that was a bonus, but even an added bonus on top of all that. Um, I think the best excitement we could experience is knowing that someone like you has listened and that you enjoy it and that you took the time out of your busy day to rate us on iTunes. So, thank you so much. Yay. Thank you. Yes. And Mrs. Joe P. If you listen to this podcast and you're on social media, send us a tweet or an email message or something and let us know who you were because we would love to we would love to connect yeah. with you. True and we're not shy. We're we're pretty generous with uh, doling out digital wine, so <laughs> Oh, absolutely. All the wine emojis. Do either of you lovely, lovely ladies, lovely mothers, strong women have any closing thoughts? I don't. I was just going to say, I know we've come um, a little longer than normal on this one, but it's because I love my mother so much. I love you two mothers. And I love the strong mothers in this book that we get to read and absorb and celebrate. And happy Mother's Day. Nice job. That's it for me. (laughs) All right. Well, I wanted to say something very similar to Ashley. How many times have you heard me say that? (laughs) It could happen. There's a mind meld. I'm aware of it. Yeah, but seriously, we we have gone long this time, and it is because this subject is near and dear to my heart. And I want to take my closing thoughts and thank Deborah Harkness for creating these strong, strong, beautiful, wonderful women that we have that we could devote an hour to talking about. Actually, I think we could devote three hours to talking about them, but we're. <laughs> We'll, we'll cut it off before then. So I want to thank her for that and, and for her beautiful words written about these women. But I also want to thank you two for being strong women and good mothers and an excellent mm. friend. Thank you. I'm going to squirt tears in my wine. <laughs> I have you. learned so much. Let's see. I've known you for what, two years? And I have learned so much about friendship and motherhood and basically you know, <laughs> being a woman, <laughs> I have learned so much about all of that from you in the last in the last two years. So I thank both of you for that. And I thank both of you for hanging out to do this every couple of weeks. 
Love you, ladies. We love you right back. Cheers to that. Cheers. Well, with that, thank you for spending some of your valuable time with us as we discuss all things All Souls. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did, and that if you feel inspired, you'll leave a review on iTunes. Please, please leave us a review on iTunes. We can handle it. If you'd like to join in the conversation, find us on Twitter and Instagram at All Souls WW, on Facebook at All Souls Witchy Women Podcast and Blog, and online at All Souls Witchy Women.com. See you soon.